Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. feels somewhat strange. To come up here without my Bible. But uh, we're going to be looking at, at God's revelation throughout history this morning and continuing in our survey of church history. And uh, we pray that the Lord would, uh, would teach us through his actions in general revelation as well as those in, in special revelation. This morning, we're going to be looking at the greatest church split in history. What, we, uh, what I've entitled here, The Great Schism, it's the, it's the common uh, name for what took place at the end of the 11th century between the eastern and western halves of the Christian church. And uh, just by way of introduction, I'd like to read a, a quote that, that Philip, uh, Philip Schaeff states, uh, referring to the eastern Orthodox church and the western Catholic church, uh, Schaeff states, No two churches in the world are at this day so much alike and yet so adverse to each other as the Oriental or Greek and the Occidental or Roman. They hold as an inheritance from the the patristic age essentially the same body of doctrine, the same canons of discipline, the same form of worship, and yet their antagonism seems... uh, (laughs) irreconcilable. Thank you, sir. Why? So today, this is what we're going to look at is, is what actually caused these two halves of, of the church to split and why there's so much antagonism that exists which prevents a reconciliation except uh, there has been some movements in recent years and, and we might mention those as well. But really, the, ski, the seeds of schism started off almost from the very beginning. There were many, many differences that already existed in the, in the two halves of the church, such that we could say that, that East and West had never really been perfectly united in the first place. Philip, uh, Philip Schaff again states, the Greek and Latin churches were never organically united under one government, but, different, but differed considerably from the beginning in nationality, language, and various ceremonies. Those in the East spoke Greek. Those in the West spoke Latin. Uh, Dr. Nick Needham quotes someone as saying, East and West did not understand each other because they did not understand each other. They were already in, inherent in the, in the different sections of the church, the two halves of the church, seeds which, uh, which, caused, uh, which caused the churches never to fully come together. East and West had different cultures and different politics. In the East, you had the Christian Byzantine Empire. In the West, you had the relatively uncivilized Germanic and Norse kingdoms, which had only recently been, been removed from paganism. 
So very different uh, political uh, structures, uh, cultures. Uh, Theologically, East and West approached doctrines from different angles, from different perspectives. The Greeks looked at things from, from from a heritage of philosophy that they had generated over years. Well, the Latins thought basically in terms of, of the law. The East emphasized, for example, in the, in the Trinity, the East emphasized the persons of the Trinity. The West emphasized the one common nature of the Trinity. Now, many times, these differing perspectives actually complemented each other. And so, Schaeff can say, as long and as far as the genuine spirit of Christianity directed them, the diversity was an element of strength to the common cause. But at other times, these, uh, these differences led into error or heresy, and they were always something from which uh, these two churches could sprout division or schism. Now, there were also differences in ritual or, um, or in practice and in doctrine. So just to list a few of them for you, the West didn't allow their priests to marry. The East allowed them to marry prior to their ordination. The West used unleavened bread in communion. The East used leavened bread in communion. And this just wasn't something they did. They actually fought amongst each other over who was right. Um, The West held that threefold immersion, single immersion, and effusion were all valid forms of baptism. The East held that threefold immersion only was the, was the only valid form of baptism. And effusion is just when, uh, when someone pours water over someone. So the West accepted several different forms of baptism as valid. The East specified that, no, only the threefold immersion uh, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That was the only valid form of baptism. The West believed that believers could be punished in purgatory after death. The East believed that believers might not be admitted directly into heaven, but denied that any believer would suffer punishment or torment. The West upheld the guilt of Adam's sin being imputed to his descendants. The East rejected the idea of Adam's guilt being imputed to his descendants. So you can see that there were many differences, both in practice and as far as doctrine is concerned, that existed between the, the two halves of the church. Now, the greatest of these, a great enough that I've given it, own, given it its own section in the notes here, is uh, what we can refer to as the, uh, the philoquy clause. Now, this concerns the doctrine of the Trinity and, uh, and specifically the, the procession of the Holy Spirit. The Western Church held that the Spirit proceeded from both the Father and the Son, whereas the Eastern Church held that the Spirit proceeded from the Father only. Now, in the original formulation of the Nicene Creed, which took place in in AD 325, the only thing that was mentioned about the Holy Spirit was was His name. We believe in, in the Holy Spirit. In uh, later on at the Council of uh, Constantinople in AD 381, the Nicene Creed was expanded. And in this version, a longer statement concerning the Spirit was added, a, a decent-sized description. And one clause of this stated that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father. 
And this form was adopted by the Council of, of Chalcedon in A.D. 451. It's not until the Third National Synod of Toledo in, in Spain in A.D. 589 that the Philoque Clause is added to the Latin version of the Nicene Creed so that the Spirit did not proceed from the Father only, but from the Father and the Son. And, and uh, by the way, uh, Philoque uh, is simply just Latin for and the Son. So when referring to the uh, Philoque Clause, we're just referring to the and the Son addition that, uh, that first appeared in this Synod of Toledo in AD 589. Now, at this time, I mean, one of the differences here between um, the, the ecumenical councils of the, of the, that first formulated the Nicene Creed and then later uh, added the longer description of the Nicene Creed, being, being ecumenical, uh, they, they involved the whole of the church. But the Synod of Toledo was very localized, so although this is the first time that this appeared in the Nicene Creed, it wasn't accepted throughout the church, but just in that one area. Now the acceptance of the, of the double procession of the Holy Spirit, that doctrine was accepted very quickly in the West. But even the Western church hesitated to add this phrase to the formulation of the Nicene Creed. And it wasn't really until this doctrine was attacked by the Eastern Church and by uh, Photius in particular, that the Western Church kind of went on the defensive and started adding it to the formulation of the Nicene Creed. In fact, the official papal adoption of this addition to the Nicene Creed may have been as late as the early 11th century. Philip Schaeff makes a statement concerning this most important difference um, He says, the Eastern Church regards the doctrine of the single procession as the cornerstone of orthodoxy and the doctrine of the double procession as the mother of all heresies. And so this was was destined to become one of the major issues that that was going to uh, formulate into the schism between the East and West. Now, let me just mention too, that the Eastern Church objected to the addition of this clause not only because of reasons of content, but also because of how it was added. Because when it was added by the Western Church, when it was adopted into the Nicene Creed, nobody from the Eastern Church was, was represented. And so it's like the Eastern Church is saying, well, wait a minute. You're changing the Nicene Creed, which was, which was formulated in one of the, the, the Catholic councils involving the whole church. And now just your half of the church decides to change it? That's pretty, pretty audacious to take it upon yourselves to, to change it without even consulting us at all. And so it wasn't just the content of the Philoque Clause, but it was also the way in which it was adopted by, by the Western church that rankled with the Eastern Church. Now, one last seed that I want to mention was the, was the patriarchal rivalry between Rome and Constantinople. Now, the claims of Rome basically grew over the years. So at first, the Bishop of Rome simply claimed a higher honor than the others, 
But this grew such that the patriarch of Rome ended up uh, finally claiming authority over the entire church. Now, the East denied that Rome had an authority surpassing the other the other ancient uh, patriarchates of uh, Constantinople, uh, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria. But Rome had developed over the years this this not only a a primacy, but a, a superiority and an authority over the rest of the church that the East took exception to. One one Eastern Archbishop writes, and this, I believe, was, uh, was in the early 12th century, so right after these events, he writes, We do not deny to the Roman Church the primacy among the five sister patriarchates, but she has separated herself from us by her own deeds, when through pride she assumed a monarchy which does not belong to her office. How shall we accept decrees from her that have been issued without consulting us and even without our knowledge? If the Roman pontiff seated on the lofty throne of his glory wishes to thunder at us, and if he wishes to judge us and even to rule us in our churches, not by taking counsel with us, but by his own arbitrary pleasure, what kind of brotherhood or even what kind of parenthood can this be? We should be the slaves, not the sons of such a church. And the Roman see would not be the pious mother of sons, but a hard and imperious mistress of slaves. So these are basically the, the main seeds that already existed within the, the, differ, the two halves of the churches that would later grow uh, into the great schism. Now something of a, of a foreshadowing or even a a, uh, maybe a trailblazing episode before the schism was, uh, was an earlier schism called the, uh, the Photian Schism. Now here, and uh, in these next three sections, I've given you the, the two major players, the, the Patriarch of Constantinople and then the respective the Pope, the, the Bishop of Rome, at that time. So on the one hand now here in the Patriarch of Constantinople we have Photius and uh, on the other side we have Pope Nicholas I. But Photius was one of the main major characters in the split between the East and the West. Uh, among the Eastern Church he's known as Saint Photius the Great. He attended the University of Constantinople, was one of the star pupils of, of its chief teacher Leo the mathematician, uh, Photius absorbed every book he came across. He is called by some the wisest man of the Middle Ages. He, uh, he was, um, by turns, a civil servant, a diplomat, and then a lecturer at the University of Constantinople. Now, an event occurred which was going to call him out of secular labor, and in A.D. 858, the current patriarch of Constantinople, Ignatius, was removed from office. And the current emperor of the Byzantine Empire, Michael III, also known as Michael the Drunkard, chose Photius, chose Photius as the new patriarch of Constantinople, even though he was a layman. Photius was horrified 
He saw his way of life as a quiet scholar threatened, but the emperor wouldn't take no for an answer, and Photius reluctantly submitted to the office. Interestingly, because he was a layman, over the next six days, he, uh, he was ordained into, into five of the offices of the church uh, at the rate of one per day, it, so that, so that uh, the first day he was ordained as a monk, and then the next day a reader, and then a subdeacon, and then a deacon, and then, and then a priest, so that on the sixth day he could actually be ordained as the patriarch of Constantinople. So... <clears throat> Now, there was a question, actually, as to whether uh, Photius's predecessor, Ignatius, had been justly deposed from his office. And actually, I think that, that uh, the verdict of, of history would be that he was unjustly deposed from his office. And Ignatius's supporters rejected Photius as a usurper. Both Photius and his opponents appealed to the Patriarch of Rome, the Pope, Pope Nicholas I, to support them in their claims. Now, if Photius was one of the greatest of patriarchs, Nicholas was one of the greatest of popes. And uh, Schaeff again states that Photius was superior in learning, Nicholas was superior in statesmanship, but in moral integrity, official pride, and obstinacy, both were fairly matched. Photius would tolerate no superior, Nicholas no equal. Now, <clears throat> this controversy over Photius's succession, was now the, the stage was now set for this to grow from a point of division in the Eastern Church to a breach between the East and the West. Nicholas wanted to take this opportunity to assert the authority of Rome over Constantinople by taking to himself the right of deciding whether Ignatius or Photius should be patriarch. If he is the man who makes the verdict as to, as to who should be in office, then, then he's exerted his authority uh, uh, over, uh, over the see of Constantinople. So Nicholas sent two bishops over to investigate the deposition of Ignatius, but somehow... Once these representatives were in Constantinople, Photius and his supporters convinced them to give their approval to a synod condemning Ignatius and upholding Photius as the true patriarch of Constantinople. Now, when Nicholas heard what his delegates had done, he was furious. So he deposed the two bishops whom he had sent, and he held a synod in 863, where he recognized Ignatius as the true and proper patriarch of Constantinople, and he deposed Photius. And Photius and his supporters were threatened with excommunication if they failed to submit to this pronouncement. Now, the Byzantine emperor, Michael III, he ignored the papal decrees and continued to support Photius as his patriarch. Now, added to what's taking place, and already you can see that Photius is the center of controversy between East and West. But there was an additional uh, factor that was going to be added here, and this was taking place in Bulgaria. What was, what was happening was Eastern and Western missionaries were battling each other to see who could, uh, who could gain the loyalties of the Bulgarian nation 
and their king, King Boris. Boris had originally been baptized by the Eastern missionaries in, uh, in 865, but when, uh, when he tried to uh, have set up an independent Bulgarian church and Constantinople didn't want to give that to him, then he started looking to Rome. And what happened was these two groups of missionaries started battling and raising up every point of contention and every point of difference that they had between East and West. Uh, and they basically uh, very much settled upon uh, the, uh, the Philoque Clause as the major point of contention. But this gave Photius an occasion to write what has come to be known as his encyclical letter. And he, he wrote this letter to all of the patriarchs in the East, charging the whole Western church with heresy and schism for interfering with the Eastern missionary activity in Bulgaria, for fasting on Saturday, for decreasing the time of Lent by a week, for eating dairy products during one of the fasts, for enforcing clerical celibacy and despising priests who lived in virtuous matrimony, and most of all, for corrupting the Nicene Creed by the, inclu- by the inclusion of the Philoque Clause. Photius then, in that same year, in, in 867, held a counter-synod where he excommunicated Pope Nicholas. Now, Photius was, was about to take a fall, however. With the, as long as he had the support of his emperor, he, he could uh, stand strong in his office. But, uh, but as Nick Needham states, Michael the drunkard spent most of the time either getting drunk or recovering from his, drink, from his drinking bouts. And so in September of 867, Michael's second-in-command, Basil the, the mathematician, murdered the emperor and usurped the throne as Emperor Basil I. Now, Photius refused to allow this murderer to partake of communion, and Basil deposed Photius, reinstating Ignatius as patriarch and imprisoning Photius in a monastery. In, uh, in 869, then, Basil assembled a church council in Constantinople that anathematized Photius and his supporters and reversed all of the decisions taken in the Council of, of 867 that had excommunicated Pope Nicholas, thus restoring the peace between the eastern and western wings of the church. Now remember, I mean, what had taken place was Pope Nicholas had excommunicated um, Photius and his followers, and Photius had excommunicated Pope Nicholas and all of the western church, basically, And so there had been a schism at that point where both halves had excommunicated the other half. But this was was brought back together at this uh, council of uh, of, uh, 869 under Basil. This council was known as the Anti-Photian Council, and the split that that it patched up was known as the Photian Schism. Now, just to let you know, kind of uh, the end of the story here. In in 873, Emperor Basil released Photius from his prison and made him tutor to his sons. Photius's brilliance and charm won over not only the emperor, but also his old opponent, Ignatius. 
And when Ignatius was ill and dying, it was Photius who was ministering to him on his deathbed. And when Ignatius died, Emperor Basil appointed Photius as, as patriarch again. Now this, at this time, this, uh, this, this second uh, installation into the patriarchage uh, was not challenged by the, by the uh, Roman Pope. Photius called together another council that ran from 879 to 880 that annulled the council of 869. And the Nicene Creed was adopted with an anathema against the Philoquy and any other changes. And uh, Pope John John VIII had sent delegates to the council, but they had basically assented to everything. This, by the way, just, just by way of a Short tangent, um, this was kind of one of the problems that took place is that, is that one side or the other would send delegates to councils. They would then be convinced of, of, the, uh, of the other side's uh, uh, arguments or beliefs, but then the one who had sent them out as representatives or delegates would then say, well, you know, you didn't do what I told you to. You've, you've sided with them, and, and so this was a problem in more than just this occasion. When Pope John learned what his legates had done, he declared that they had operated contrary to their instructions and he anathematized Photius again. So, Emperor Basil's son, favorite son, died in 879. And Emperor Basil was driven uh, basically almost insane. He thought he was being judged for his murder of his predecessor. And for the next seven years, with the emperor mentally indisposed, Photius ruled over not only the Eastern Church, but basically the entire Byzantine Empire. So both the church and the state were under his rule for those seven years. However, in in 886, Basil I died, and one of his sons, Leo VI, became emperor. Uh, Emperor Leo was also called uh, Leo the Philosopher, or Leo the Wise, although perhaps Uh, Not justly. This emperor, whom Photius had taught, deposed his old teacher so that he could ordain his youngest brother, Stephen, as the patriarch of Constantinople. And uh, Photius was exiled to Armenia, where he died nine years later. Uh, After his death, he was then buried in the the Church of the Holy Wisdom, uh, Constantinople's chief church, where he was honored with Ignatius, with the words, Ignatius and Photius, the Orthodox patriarchs in everlasting memory. Now, that Emperor Leo, he's going to come up again. Basically, um, he was also involved in a later controversy, and we won't spend as much time on this one. But the trouble came in, uh, in 905 when he was married for the fourth time, each of his previous wives having died. So this was not polygamy. It was just his fourth marriage. And our reaction today would probably be pity for this threefold widower and prayers for the preservation of his fourth wife's life. But a fourth marriage was forbidden in the East, although not in the West. So speaking of the, uh, of the beliefs of the Eastern Church, Schaaf states, The Greek church regards marriage as a sacrament 
and a necessary means for the propagation of the race. But a second marriage is prohibited to the clergy. A third marriage is tolerated in laymen as a sort of legal concubinage. And a fourth is condemned as a sin and a scandal. Now, Nicholas Mysticus was the patriarch of Constantinople at this time. And when his emperor emperor was married for the fourth time, as a good Eastern patriarch, he opposed the marriage. And so Emperor Leo deposed him from the office in 906. Kind of one of the nice things about being an emperor is... uh, is that if you are called on the carpet by the patriarch, you can always depose him. So, Now, Nicholas found no help from the Pope in the West, where fourth marriages were allowed. And so Pope Sergius III sanctioned the fourth marriage of the emperor, and he also sanctioned the deposition of the conscientious Nicholas. Um, needless to say, this didn't improve feelings between East and West. In 912, Leo was on his deathbed and restored Nicholas to office. And in 920, a synod of Constantinople declared a fourth marriage illegal. The emperor Constantine, which somewhat ironically was the son born to Leo in his fourth marriage, the emperor Constantine sent out an edict prohibiting a fourth marriage. And the pope pope acquiesced and in, uh, in Schaff's words, the schism slumbered during the dark 10th century. So see what happened there is, although the East maintained, no, it's wrong, we, we forbid this, the, the Pope didn't respond. And so the differences uh, didn't come to a head in, in a type of schism because the Pope didn't press his point. Now where the schism basically completed the, the separation between East and West, was, uh, was around the mid-11th century. And at this time, the Byzantine emperor, Constantine IX, made an alliance with the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry, Henry III, and, and Pope Leo IX against the Normans who were invading southern Italy and threatening both Byzantine and papal lands. Now, I realize that there have been a lot of Leos uh, throughout uh, this section of history, we now come to a new Leo. This is, this is in uh, uh, the mid-11th century, and this is the Pope at the time. And what's, ta- what's taking place is that in southern Italy, there were lands that belonged to the Byzantine Empire and that belonged to the Holy Roman Empire. And the, Mor- the Normans were coming in and invading, and the, the threat to both of their lands caused them to want to join together. And so the Byzantine emperor joined with the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope. Now part of the agreement that was stipulated between these these three parties was that the Greek churches in Italy, the Greek churches in the Byzantine lands in Italy, would come under the authority of the Pope. And that the Patriarch of Constantinople would acknowledge the superior authority of Rome over Constantinople. Now, the current patriarch of Constantinople was a gentleman by the name of Michael Carolarius, uh, who Brian says I should call Carl. So, but I, maybe I'll just call him Michael. So, <clears throat> Michael refused to acknowledge the su- superiority of the Pope. 
And in response to the Western church's takeover of the Greek churches in Italy, he demanded that the Latin churches in Constantinople conform to Greek rites. And when these churches refused, in 1052, Michael closed these churches down. In 1053, Michael teamed up with, with another Leo, Leo of, uh, of Acria, the head of the Bulgarian church, to write a letter to Pope Leo and all of the bishops of France, charging them with errors in practice, using unleavened bread in communion, feasting on Saturdays, eating the meat of strangled animals, and not singing the Alleluia during Lent. Now, the Pope, in response, called upon Cardinal Humbert to respond, who wrote a stinging and uncompromising letter asserting the Roman claims to primacy in the church. Later, in 1053, the invading Normans captured Pope Leo IX with a, with a victory in southeastern Italy. The Byzantine Emperor Constantine, seeing how great now was the threat to his Italian land, was able to persuade Michael to make overtures of peace to the Pope. Pope Leo appointed Cardinal Humbert and two others to travel to Constantinople to work out a better relationship with the East. But by the time they had reached Constantinople, Pope Leo had unexpectedly died. Now, Michael and, and Humbert were not the best of, of diplomats. If you were going to pick two men to create a better relationship, these were not the men to choose. In fact, Dr. Dr. Nick Needham states, the patriarch and the cardinal were two of the most high-spirited, stubborn, aggressive men who have ever lived in the history of humanity, each completely lacking in any of the graces required for diplomacy. So the meeting, therefore, had some predictable results. Cardinal Humbert responded to, to, uh, to Michael with countercharges of the errors of the Eastern churches, and there was a list, and a letter that he had written in which he stated that Peter and his successors, the popes at Rome, had an unfettered jurisdiction over the whole church, since no one ought to interfere with their position, because the highest see is, ju is judged by none. Now, in response to, to this letter and to these, these countercharges, uh, and with, with Pope Leo dead, uh, Michael refused to recognize Humbert, uh, recognize Humbert as, a, as a valid authority to, to negotiate. And on July 16th, 1054, Humbert, with his two companions, marched into the Church of the Holy Wisdom and placed on the altar a document excommunicating Michael and anyone else who would criticize the faith of the Church of Rome. And so Michael responded by anathematizing Humbert and his two companions. Now there is something actually interesting here, and that is, is that although the West excommunicated Michael and all those who followed him, um, the East only excommunicated the representatives and not the entire church. But this was, this was basically... A, the breaking point, the point of, of completion for the schism between East and West. The West supported Humbert's excommunication, while the East joined Michael under the anathema of the Roman church. Uh, the two churches were now separate, 
and known on the one hand as the Western Catholic Church and on the other hand as the Eastern Orthodox Church. Now, both East and West actually believed that there could only be one true church, so therefore the West saw the Eastern Church as cut off from grace by, by Humbert's action, and the East saw the Western Church as cutting themselves off from grace by their excommunication of the East. Now, this schism, which was completed in 1054, was basically sealed by the actions of the Crusades. And so when the advance and the success of the Seljuk Turks caused the Byzantine emperors to look to the West for help, one of the considerations actually that motivated the popes to help them was the possibility of reunion with the Eastern Church. However, it was actually the Crusades, more than anything that followed, that sealed the schism and made reunion all but impossible. The swarms of pillaging mobs the appointment of Western bishops over Eastern seas, the worst of all the, and worst of all, the conquest and pillage of Constantinople in the Fourth Crusade was met with outrage and hatred from the Easterners, from the Eastern Church. Stephen Runciman, in his three-volume work on the Crusades, remarks on this and says, Meanwhile, Hatred had been sown between Eastern and Western Christendom. It was perhaps inevitable that the Church of Rome and the great Eastern churches should drift apart. But the whole crusading movement had embittered their relations, and henceforward, whatever a few princes might try to achieve, in the hearts of the East Christians, the schism was complete, irremediable, and final." Now, there were some, some later attempts to try, and, uh, to try and reunite the churches. Um, I just mentioned the Fourth Crusade recently. When the Fourth Crusade con- conquered Constantinople and formed the, the Latin Kingdom in, uh, of Constantinople in 1204, it wasn't until many years later that Michael um, Palag... Palagogius, who, it was he in 1261 who regained Constantinople for the Byzantine Empire. Now, he had a fear, having just reconquered Constantinople, that this might cause the Western Church to call for a crusade to regain the city. And so he, he had motivation to enter into negotiations with Pope Urban IV for the purpose of reunion, lest they just decide to raise up a crusade and and reconquer the city again. And so from 1273 to 1274, a council was held in Lyons, France, that came to an agreement on church practice and the creed, but the Eastern patriarchs were not represented or not well represented, and the people of Constantinople, newly liberated, abhorred the thought of union with Rome, and the agreement was rejected by the Eastern Church. Uh, one other a major attempt at reunion um, was also uh, motivated by the continuing advance, the continuing threat of the, of the Turks. And in 1438 through 1439, the Byzantine Emperor John VII and the Patriarch of Constantinople traveled to Florence, Italy, for another attempt at reunion. 
the Eastern delegation agreed to a formula that was designed to heal the schism, but, uh, but once again, uh, and basically all but one of the Eastern delegates uh, signed up for this formula. The one holdout was Mark of Ephesus. But on their return, the Eastern churches totally rejected the agreement, and it was Mark of Ephesus, the holdout, who was considered the hero for not, in a sense, uh, uh, being a traitor to his people or the doctrines of the Eastern Church. Uh, the Byzantine emperor, John VII, and then later his successor, Constantine Eleventh, continued to defend the agreement until the Turks captured Constantinople on May 29, 1453. And after this, there was really no serious efforts to repair the schism until the 1960s. Now, just to give you an idea of some of the sprinklings that happened uh, a little bit later, during the 1800s, the schism was widened by the Roman adoption of two new dogmas, the Immaculate Conception of Mary in, uh, in 1854 and the infallibility of the Pope in 1870. Now, there, there have been some recent... Um, overtures towards reunion or at least towards forgiveness. The first of these was uh, in January 1964 as a result of the initiation initiation of certain uh, Catholics in the Ukraine. Pope Paul VI and Patriarch Athenagoras met in Jerusalem. And in 1965, they revoked the anathemas of Humbert and Michael that had been in existence for 911 years. Now, then just recently, in the last couple decades, in in 1987, Pope John Paul II and the current patriarch uh, uh, Demetrios I met in Rome, and they recited the Nicene Creed together using the virgin virgin without the, uh, the Philoque Clause. And in 1995, John Paul celebrated a Mass at which the then-current patriarch Bartholomew I was the main speaker. Now, although in this time of, uh, of uh, ecumenicalism there have been some of these recent overtures, really nothing has been done to remove the major obstacles of reunion that exist doctrinally um, even if differences in, in ritual, uh, some of the differences in doctrine could be overcome, it's unlikely that the Eastern churches would place themselves under the authority of the Pope in order to repair this breach that's been in existence for nine and a half centuries. So, so that's kind of where things are at today. Um, I've gone a little bit over time, and, uh, and I, uh, I didn't have this all worked out. But one of the things that I wanted to point out here was that you'll notice that when there was opposition between the, the churches, when there was some question over, over a doctrinal uh, tenet, that many times there wasn't the, the best of, uh, uh, what would you say, sanctified delegations that took place. 
There wasn't, there wasn't open dialogue. There wasn't, there wasn't a, 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 they didn't come together to try and seek to, to actually find the truth. Instead, they were too busy anathematizing each other, excommunicating each other, and uh, to really try and seek out who was at error. And, and uh, I think that that's something that we should caution ourselves today is that we shouldn't let the, the flesh get involved into some of these areas. And I'm not trying to, to talk down about these men, some of whom were great men of integrity, I, I trust. But, uh, but I think that when we come across certain issues, we want to keep some of our, our feelings of resentment or pride or superiority or indignation or whatever else from causing a split where there could actually be some type of resolution and a schism would not need to be made. So let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we we pray for for your church as it exists today. We pray for our church, Father. And we ask, Lord, that that we would learn from those who who have walked before us, Father, not to repeat their mistakes, but, Father, that we would emulate, uh, Lord, where they have been men of integrity, where they have stood for the truth. Uh, Father, we pray for discernment so that we would, uh, so that we would know from your word uh, what is truth and what is falsehood. Father, lead us into all truth, we pray, and preserve us from error. Father, whether in doctrine or whether in practice, we pray, Lord, that we might always be a, a beacon of light to this valley. And, Father, that you would not... That you would not cause us to, to, uh, to mar our witness or, or Father, our joy by, uh, by having any schisms or factions or dissensions in the future. But, Father, give us unity and preserve that, we pray, in Christ's holy name. Amen. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.